0: Hey, everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here this morning. How about you? All right. So on February 19th, 1519, Hernan Cortez set sail for the New World with 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, sailors, 553 soldiers, and a dream to conquer a whole bunch of territory and amass great wealth for Spain. The catch was the indigenous people he was about to encounter were the mighty Aztec Empire under Moctezuma, and they numbered over five million. So, from a purely mathematical standpoint, the mission was impossible. And yet, less than two and a half years after his ships left port, Cortez stood victorious in the heart of the capital city of Tenochtitlan. How? Like setting aside the ethical and moral questions of conquest, the simple historical reality begs the question how was that even possible? And the answer is there are a whole number of factors that all played an important role, but one of them, unquestionably, was the order Hernan Cortez gave once they landed. When they reached the beach at Chow Khan and unloaded all their gear and supplies, he looked at his men and gave them a simple three-word command, burn the ships. Try and put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. You're a conquistador landing to fight a mighty empire, and the commander says, burn the ships. And if that was me, I wouldn't have been like, yeah, where's a match, buddy? I would have been like, um, oh, Hernan? Sir, how are we going to get home then? Well, that was exactly the point, right? Cortez made a choice to make his mission an all-or-nothing proposition. And as his troops watched their ride to retreat burn and sink, they realized the only pathway now was forward. So that's the direction they went. I think it's interesting for us, as we kick off a new year and dream about what the future might look like to think about how progress is made. I read an article this week about New Year's resolutions. It said 91% of them fail, 80% of them fail before February, and over half of Americans have just quit making them because we're sick of failing. And I thought, whew, that is not an impressive review of our performance as a society. It's not a a great picture of us being people who are good at accomplishing the stuff we think we ought to do and the stuff we want to do. But the truth is progress is really difficult. So many of us have dreams about how we can move from where we are to... The places we want to be, from who we are to who we believe God created us to be. And we sit down and we make plans and we have some idea of the journey it might take to get there. And then we set sail for the new world with the best of intentions to land on those shores and bury our anchors and go forward. But the truth is, as long as our ships remain ready to sail, we always have a way to retreat. Most of our failures in life come from doing just that. Sometimes, sometimes we give it our best and discover we can't, but usually we discover it's difficult and decide that we won't. When it becomes challenging and costly, we just turn around and sail back to the lives we once knew and settle for them, even though we didn't want to settle for them before we realized how hard it would be to press forward and forge a new life. We're kicking off a new series this morning called Burn the Ships, where we're going to talk about some of the things we need to leave behind if we're going to claim the beauty God has waiting out ahead of us. And part of the reason we're doing that at the beginning of a brand new year is that the older I get, the more it blows my mind how much as human beings we cling to and struggle to let go of even little things. Like, for instance, at my house, single socks, okay? I don't know why we continue to convince ourselves that a sock which lost its mate somewhere on the journey from the bedroom to the dryer and back again will one day be reunited, but I got a whole pile of them. One of them is bright neon green. It was widowed years ago, And it's a color that like, if it was anywhere in my house or my drawer, we would have known it by now, but I'm still just holding out hope that it's buddy is gonna be found and I can wear them again. What about about chargers? We have a shoebox full of old chargers. I don't even know what they used to charge. I know they don't charge anything now, but if the world goes back to universal pin chargers, my house is ready for that stuff. Or anybody else in here got uh, a Ziploc bag full of Chick-fil-A sauces from 2018 (laughs) in your junk drawer or your pantry? Because you never know when you're going to be hungry for pre-pandemic sauce, right? (laughs) Buttons. I got a a collection of buttons that came with, with shirts. I've never sewn a button on in my life. I wouldn't know where to start. But if they start popping off, I am prepared for that stuff. Or last, but certainly not least, boards. Every dad I have ever met in the basement or the garage has a random collection of boards as though someday... Nine and a quarter inches of old baseboard with a notch in it is going to come in handy. Somebody's going to be like, do you have this? Like, oh, I have exactly what you're looking for. I just think part of being human is holding on to stuff that we should get rid of. And it's one thing to have a few extra two by fours laying around, but some of the stuff we're clinging to is more significant than socks. I'm going to start talking about that stuff over the course of the next few weeks, because if we can't release the anchors that are tying us to the past, we will never move forward to the future God wants to hand us. And today, I want to kick things off by talking about a ship I think every single one of us needs to burn. It's a ship called Guilt. And if you're sitting here right now and, and you don't have any of that, like, if you've been nailing it for so long that you don't have any scars or any wounds or any moments, you desperately wish you could hop at a time machine, go back and relive. If you don't have any parts of your story you would kill to take an eraser to, then I just want to say, thank you for visiting Revision Jesus. <laughs> for the rest of us, though, sometimes getting past our past is a fairly epic problem. We've got things we've done that caused pain in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, and we feel the weight of it every day. And I know as soon as I start to mention that, the past and shame and guilt and frustration, there are some of us sitting here who start to tune me out. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But Mike, maybe this is for you. Maybe your mistakes are minor. Maybe your sins and your scars are small. Maybe your failures weren't final. But you don't know my whole story, man. Like, if you understood what I've done, you would know why that just is who I am and why it puts a lid on who I can become. I get it. There are a lot of us sitting here this morning who are feeling crushed by our past mistakes. When I say past, it could be 10, 20, 30 years ago. It could be last night, last week, last month. It could be the fight that you got in on the car right here this morning. Like it could be any of that, but it's heavy and the weight of it sometimes drags us down and imprisons us in our past in a way that causes us to just drift toward the future. We're not really actively chasing down the dreams God's placed in our hearts or the identity He says we were made for. We're just allowing the future to happen to us and we're dealing with our guilt and our shame by just kind of, hoping it goes away. Hoping I can wake up tomorrow morning and all that bitterness and all that hurt and all that pain and all those mistakes have just somehow disappeared. And we turn to another, a number of things to help us cope with that. Control, withdrawal, anger. You ever met somebody who's angry all the time? And it's never even about what's happening right now. It's something from their past and they take it out on whoever or whatever is in front of them. They're the funnest people to be around, but they're using anger to create distance. We use anger to create distance. We use humor to create distance. We use sarcasm or substances. But here's what I want every single person in this room to walk out of here knowing that you know that you know today. You may not be able to hop into DeLorean, go back and get a brand new start, but that's not a big deal for God. He's willing to give you a new future. The catch though is for all of us, unless or until we can burn the ship of our guilt, it's going to be hard for us not to keep coming back to it. Not to keep looking back and saying, well, that has to be who I was, because it's still sitting there on the shore. You guys, if we do not let our past die, it will not let us live. So how do we deal with the guilt we feel, with the shame we see in ourselves every time we see a mirror, or the shame we feel every time we see that person pass that place, hear that song, and it takes us back? for starters, I think we just got to come to a base level understanding of why shame and guilt exist in our lives at all. From a biblical, theological, historical standpoint, God created humanity with the ability to choose him or walk away from him because that made real love and real relationship possible. And ever since Adam and Eve in the garden held a hand up to God's design and decided we're going in the other direction of him, we think we know better than he knows. We're going to do it our own way. Guilt has been an inescapable reality in our universe. Guilt is a universal human experience because we exist in a sin-shattered universe and we cannot help but do things that hurt us, hurt the world, hurt God, and hurt the people around us. And so guilt for all of us is both a fact and a feeling. It's a fact that you've done awful, horrible things. You're guilty, but it's also a feeling. This, awful thing that exists inside of you because of that, because of what it cost you and others and the world. And that feeling often plays itself out as a sense that there's some sort of debt that needs to be repaid. In fact, most of the emotional prisons that cut us off from the future God has for us come from this sense that there's a debt. Like bitterness comes from the sense that you owe me. You did something that robbed me of something and you owe me repayment for that. I'm bitter. Greed comes from the sense that I owe me. I owe me whatever I want. I owe me all of my dreams and all of my desires and everything I can get my hands on. And so I'm going to chase it at whatever it costs to everyone around me and I'm going to cling to it. And guilt, guilt comes from the sense that I owe you. I did something that took something from you. I'm, I'm guilty of that. And that's a fairly intuitive understanding for us. We may not be able to articulate it like that, but it's why when we hurt people, we say things like, I owe her an apology. I feel like I need to go make it right with him. And sometimes the only currency we have is the words, I'm sorry, but we still feel the need to pay something by speaking them out loud. But I think the reason so many of us are living with guilt and shame. So many of us are staring back constantly at that ship waiting on the shore, wondering if it's going to take us back to who we used to be rather than forward to who God says we were made to be, is that we're just not sure how to fully get rid of that guilt and that feeling inside us. And so we just paper over the cracks and we use some sort of strategies to try and tune it out. You guys, so many people in our world, so many of us in here this morning deal with guilt the way I dealt with my car when I was a teenager when I turned 16, it was right about the time my grandma decided she should not be driving anymore. And the rest of us decided that like a decade earlier. It was getting like, whew. but she was old. It took her a while to figure it out. And so she gave me her car, which was older than me, but still pretty sweet 16th birthday present. You're gonna be surprised to hear though that a 17-year-old car has some stuff wrong with it. It just had weird noises. And the stereo didn't work, so I heard all of them. I'd drive down the road and hear every clink, clank, and clunk. So after a few months, I took it to a shop, and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with it. And they quoted me a whole bunch of stuff that could be done to tune it up, and it was a few hundred dollars. I was 16. I fixed the stereo. That way, crank that stuff up, I didn't hear any of the noises anymore. And that sadly worked out for me for way longer than it should have until like a couple years later, that thing died in the middle of the road. And I'll tell you what, I did not hear it coming. (laughs) But like, that's such a stupid way to live. I wish I could just go back and shake 16-year-old Mike. And yet, that's what most of us do with our guilt. We're like, I don't know what else to do. I'll just crank up the radio and tune it out. There's a better way though. And so this morning, what I want to do is give us two action steps that will allow us to move toward the beauty God's, out, or God's got out, out of us. If you've got a Bible with you, you can crack it open to the book of Psalms 103. If you don't have that, no worries. You can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you need a Bible, or your kids do. We have a whole bunch of them back in the Next Steps area. They're completely free. We love it when they disappear. Please take one before you leave today. Psalm 103 is David, talking about guilt and shame in his own life, and he has plenty of it. He's a guy who's done enough wrong things that he could define himself by his worst moments for his entire life. But what I love about this poem specifically is that it kind of provides God's perspective, it's it's like a god's eye view of your worst moments. This is what it says. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has taken our sin away from us. You guys, this is gone. It's gone, gone. You heard an announcement, we're doing a baptism service in about a month. And it's an incredible opportunity to take a step of faith and obedience and stand up in the public square and declare that your life and future belong to Jesus. One of my favorite things about baptism, though, is the picture. That as we're like immersed under the water, and then we come back up out of it, it's this incredibly powerful visual reminder that our old self with all of its fears and all of its faults and all of its failures and all of its guilt and all of its shame was crucified on that cross with Jesus and is buried with him in the tomb. And a whole brand new life that God now sees through the lens of Jesus and his righteousness was raised with him. And if you're here today thinking, I could use a brand new life, sign up to get more information about baptism. It's gonna be an incredible day. But this is what the cross means for us. This is the gospel. We're forgiven and set free Our sin, our shame, our failures are buried with Jesus and he wants to hand us a whole brand new life. And so the first step is actually a really simple one. And in burning this guilt ship, it's accept God's forgiveness. Believe it. Believe that what Jesus accomplished counts for you. Not just for the world, but for you. Because I think, I don't know, I look at my own life and if you're anything like me, Even those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a really long time have this internal struggle. We come to the point where intellectually we understand the gospel and even believe it. We're like, yes, Jesus stepped out of eternity into the human story to do what I couldn't do. To accomplish for me the the space of reconciliation between me and god and me and other people like jesus jesus did that for the world because he so loved the world and that's a really amazing thing for everybody else but i'm not sure it counts for me anymore because i know what i've done How, how 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 could god love me how could god listen like that one was a step too far that one was was like one time too many that I'm coming to him with the same exact failure and the same exact sin, and so the gospel is amazing, and I'll preach it, and I'll believe it, and I, I think God loves every living human on the planet except me, because I just, I can't wrap my mind around why that would count for me anymore after what I've done. And if you're feeling like that this morning, if you're if you're tempted to believe it. If you're in a space where some voice is whispering into your soul, your failure is not an event, your failure is an identity, I want to beg you, please, like please, as you kick off 2024, please do not ever put a period where God put a comma. I messed up, period. No, no, that's not how the author is writing your story. I messed up, comma, but Jesus exchanged his life for mine, so I'm forgiven and set free. I am not what I've done or what's happened to me. I'm not who the world says I am. I am who he says I am. When we believe that, it makes all the difference. It allows us to burn that ship of guilt and move forward knowing that God doesn't see us through the lens of the moments we want to forget. He sees us through the lens of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, some of us, some of us are like, all right, I actually believe that, Mike. I'm, I'm sitting here today. I believe you. I know it. I, I struggle with it occasionally, but I, I believe in my soul that I'm forgiven, that, that God really does love me and that Jesus' sacrifice counts for me. But I still feel bad. I still have this, like, this weight of guilt, and it's in there, and I don't know how to get it out. What do I do? Well, I got a second action step for you. This one's tougher. It may not seem tougher or sound tougher, but experientially, it's cranking it up to 11. You also have to admit your mistakes. Accept God's forgiveness and admit your mistakes. The biblical theological word for that is confession. And confession is a difficult thing to do. But I'm convinced if we don't confess, like even if we really believe in the goodness and love and forgiveness of God, if we don't confess, we're never gonna fully be able to burn that ship called guilt and step into the future we were meant for. Because that guilt is just gonna have a grip on our soul's, David actually explained that phenomenon in a different psalm, Psalm 32. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David's like, when I try to keep that stuff inside, when I tried to live a life where nobody really knew me except me, and I wasn't even being honest with God about just the significance of my sin and my scars and my stupidity, I felt like the chains of shame and guilt were so heavy, they were sucking the life right out of me. And I think we had, or if we had an honest, vulnerable moment with each other this morning, every one of us could admit that we know what that feels like. Like, I've been in that space. We know the awful, terrible power our worst secrets have over us. But here's the deal. Secrets lose power when we drag them out into the light. They're kind of like cockroaches. They're super gross, but they disappear super fast when the light turns on, all right? So how do we do this confession thing? How do, how do we drag that stuff into the light and get rid of it? Well, we start with God because he knows anyway he's the easiest place to start. We come to him and tell him the full honest truth about what we've done, about what we have felt, about what we've thought, about what's still living somewhere in the deep, dark corners of our hearts. I'm convinced of this. You cannot be right with God unless you're real with God. Like, if you're holding on to stuff that you can't even bring yourself to bring to him, on some level, you're holding a hand up to him. You're creating a a gap that his love and his forgiveness desperately wants to close, but you're like, I I don't know. I don't know, I'm I'm cutting you off. I'm not right with you. And so I'm ashamed to come near you. And the thing about guilt is it, it creates relational distance. It cuts us off from God because we're focused on our failures and we feel like he couldn't possibly love us. It cuts us off from people we've hurt and who've hurt us because we know that we owe them and we're ashamed. Do You ever notice how infrequently you see someone who owes you money? you used to see them every day, and now you got to hunt them down, text them your Venmo all the time, like, hey, in case you forgot, buddy. But this is what guilt does for us. And so the, the first thing we do is, is confess our guilt to God. And when I say confess, I mean more than, like, admit that you did it. Confession is, is bigger than, than acknowledging your culpability. Like, yes, mom, I broke your vase. Like, yes, officer, I know exactly how fast I was going back there. Like, Yes, Jenny, I did drink the chocolate milk straight from the carton because I feel like it's more delicious that way. That's, that's a thing. That's a start, but it's not it. I used to think it was. When I was a kid, I read 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive. And so I thought it was like this quid pro quo system, right? Like I do my part, then God does his part. And I would lay in bed at night and envision writing out every sin I had committed that day. I literally did this. And uh unsurprisingly, as a, as a kid, my list was pretty much the same every day. There was a lot of stuff making repeat appearances. call my sister dumb. punch my brother. But it was kind of working out all right for me, because as I would like, envision writing it down in my mind, I envisioned God just emptying out my guilt bucket, which left me in a spot where I could wake up the next morning and go fill her back up. I had a lot of space. <laughs> And the thing is, I developed a confession habit to support my sin habit. And as a child, that felt like a neat loophole, but I later came to the understanding that maybe there's something more God's inviting us to when He invites us to confession. I get, when we hear the word confess in English, it's got a lot to do with like admitting it, but in Hebrew and Greek, in the Bible, it's admitting it so we can change it. It's more about transformation than it is about telling God something he already knows. Like newsflash, he saw it happen. At no point when you tell God what you did is he like, that is the missing puzzle piece on her life. I didn't know that happened. Like confession isn't telling God stuff he already knows. It's telling God, hey, I did that and I need your power to change it. I don't want to be that anymore. I want to move from who I am to who you made me to be so By your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, will you work in my life to transform me? So bring it to God. And if you do that, as you do that, you'll find release from some of that stuff. But when, not if, when you've accepted God's forgiveness and you've confessed your stuff to God and you still feel kind of crunched by guilt, you gotta remember There's a debt to be paid because God isn't the only one you hurt. Like if you hurt somebody else, you got to confess to God, and then you have to confess to that person, to the person you owe. And I want to encourage you, don't wait on that stuff because guilt will have a grip on you in the waiting. I just don't believe we will ever be able to move forward meaningfully until we're willing to walk toward reconciliation with the people we've heard. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 5. He looks at this crowd during the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that a brother or sister has something against you, and not that like you're mad at them, like, and there remember you did something that costs someone, and there's a debt. You remember while you're at the altar that they got something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come offer your gift. And it's important for us to understand the full context here. In the first century, Jews would wait in a line all day to finally get their chance to make it to the altar. It was like going to Disney at spring break. Like you were in that line for a long time. And Jesus rolls in, he's like, yeah, I know you've been in there for a long time. I know this has been your whole day. I know it would be super inconvenient at this point for you to start the process all over again at the beginning of the line, but you don't understand what is at stake. It's costing you and it's costing them. It's literally sucking the life out of every party involved. So go make it right first. I promise it's going to be worth it. Because healing begins when we're willing to confess what we've done, confess our mistakes to God and to the people we hurt, and begin taking steps toward restitution. And it's so powerful. Like, if you have any doubt about the life redirecting, future reshaping, ship burning power of confessing to the people you've hurt, Flip the tables for a little bit. Turn it on its head and think about your life and the things that you've suffered. Whose apology is it that you most desire and least expect? What would it mean if that person showed up in your life and owned it and took steps to make it right? This is life-changing stuff. It's life-changing stuff and The beauty of it is that we not only set free someone we've hurt, but we find freedom as well as we begin to step into the future and away from a past that's been anchoring us to our worst mistakes. Like, this is the starting line for the journey from where you are now to who God says you were made to be. And so I just think, like, if we're willing this year, at the beginning of 2024, to accept God's forgiveness and admit our mistakes, it'll make a huge difference. And if we don't do it, if we won't do it, if we're like, you know what? I like the forgiveness part. I don't like the confession part. It feels like the cost is gonna be too great. I'm not sure we're ever gonna escape the reality where we continue to look back at that ship called guilt sitting on the shore and wonder if our identity is not wrapped up in our greatest mistakes. Like in 2024, we can all walk out of here and keep living the exact same way teenage Mike lived. We can keep cranking up the radio and pretending everything isn't broken all around us, but eventually things will shatter. Or we can put our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and live like it's true. We can burn the ship called guilt and begin the next chapter God has for us because we know we are forgiven and set free and that changes everything. And that freedom is costly. I know. Admitting our failures, confessing what we've taken is painful, it's inconvenient, and it's even embarrassing sometimes. But when we think about paying that price, we got to remember God paid a massive price for our reconciliation when He gave His life. And in the shadow of the cross, all of our excuses kind of fade away. I promise you the consequences of concealment are way bigger than the consequences of confession. And so if we can begin a new year by accepting God's forgiveness and admitting our mistakes. If we can burn that ship called guilt, we can begin to move forward away from who the world says we are, away from who our mistakes say we are, away from maybe even who we've believed we are, to who God says we are and to the beauty he's got waiting for us. please just pray with me? God, thank you for forgiveness. Thanks that grace is real. Thanks that who we are is not defined by what we've done. Thanks that our mistakes are not final. Thanks that you loved us enough to show up in our story and create the conditions where we could be set free. And Lord, I I pray for every single one of us. We're a room full of people who have done some stuff in our lives we desperately wish we wouldn't have done. We're a room full of people who wish we could take an eraser to some moments in our stories. And it's easy for us to believe the lie that our stories are over, to believe the lie that our failures have a period after them. But God, would you remind us who you are and what you did for us? Would you allow us to live into the fullness of what the gospel means so that we can be forgiven people who live free? And we step away from the brokenness of our past in the direction of the beauty of our future. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.